This is John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. That was user error. It wasn't on. <laughs> I shared an Uber with a friend on the way home, uh, or on the way to a birthday party, and he looked over at me in the car in the back seat, and he said, I've got to tell you something. And at this stage in my life, I've had this got to tell you something moment a number of times, so I already knew what he was going to say before he said it. We're pregnant. But he had waited uh, a little while to tell me because I'd had this exact same moment in, in another Uber with this exact same guy before, and that time it ended in miscarriage. A little, bit, a little bitty life was forming in his wife's womb, and then they made all those calls to parents and to friends, and they heard all the excited screams, and they talked about boy or girl and discussed the names that they liked and everything like that, and imagined what their family would be like with one more in it, and then all of that was taken before they ever lived a day of it. They had already lived through that experience once, so they waited extra, extra long just to be extra sure and then said, hey, we're pregnant again. And she told me that I could tell you tonight, but we're not going to tell anyone else for a while. So as of right now, the only people in the whole world that know are me, you, her, and Emilio, the Uber driver, <laughs> who was who obviously eavesdropping. And I saw her later that night, and I went up and I hugged my friend, and I said congratulations really discreetly so no one else would notice. And then I saw the two of them again six days later, and this time we were weeping together because it was another miscarriage. The life that I had planned and daydreamed about, and then this positive pregnancy test, and the, the life that I imagined and got giddy about and got excited about again this time, all of it gone. Something was taken from me, and I don't have a bow to tie on top of that story. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't resolve yet. Maybe not ever. All I've got is silence, absence, and where are you, God? Where are you now that I really, really need you? I remember uh, walking down the uh, sidewalk on a spring day in New York City, it was a sunny afternoon in early spring, that kind of day where the whole city comes alive, like people are coming out of hibernation from the winter, and every cafe that has any outdoor seat is taken by someone enjoying the sun and laughing and aglow with the new season. So I'm walking down the sidewalk on that kind of day, and I get a phone call, and it's James. And men don't typically call men just to talk. So I'm immediately curious, well, why is he calling me? And I pick up the phone and he says, the wedding's off. And I could tell that he meant to say more, but his voice broke. He got choked up right when he said that part. Dana and I have decided to call off the wedding. And then I asked the obvious question that you have to ask in response to that. The one he had to have known was coming. Why? And then he explained to me that he had broken her trust in a way that she could not forgive, couldn't forgive right away anyway, and definitely couldn't forgive with, with an end date or a time that the forgiveness needed to be complete like a wedding date. And so they had called off the wedding and he was calling me because I was the pastor that was supposed to officiate their ceremony. But I knew, of course, that I was only one of the many calls that he was making that day. He was also calling his grandparents and aunts and uncles and that old college roommate who was one of his groomsmen. And everyone was going to ask the question I asked, why? And he was going to have to relive this story over and over. He was going to have to tell everyone I had a plan. I had hopes and dreams and she was in every last one of them. And then the life that I thought I had, the one that I thought was guaranteed me, was taken. It died right before my eyes, and there is no reason to expect resurrection. I was in line uh, at LaGuardia Airport at 4.45 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, and as I'm standing there in the haze of that hour, 
I heard someone from somewhere else in the line go, Tyler Staten! And I turn, and it's, it's Sunday, the name, not the day. And he's one of those people that I'm pretty sure uh, never sleeps and doesn't have to. He's always so full of life. He's always loud in a good way. He's always laughing and hopeful and fun. And he was on the same flight as me. I was going to Chicago, and he had to stop through Chicago for a layover on his way to Texas. And because it was a Southwest flight, it was a choose-your-own-seat situation. And so he and I sat next to each other the the whole flight, and and I listened as he talked to me about this new job that he had just landed at J. Crew, and how he was finally breaking into the fashion industry, which is what he'd always really wanted to do. And it wasn't just that he was breaking in, he was breaking in with the exact company that he dreamed of working for, and he was due to start the day that he returned from visiting his family. And then we bought sandwiches together at the Chicago airport, and we hung out a bit longer, and then when his flight was taking off, we said goodbye, and I said, I'll see you back in New York. And again, man, congrats. He got a headache that weekend at his mom's house, and he laid down on the couch for a minute and then had a brain aneurysm. He wasn't coming back to New York. He was in a coma on full life support in some Texas hospital. So our community then rallied. There's this cafe in Queens that sat right on the same corner that he lived at. And they let us use the back room of their cafe for healing prayer. So every night of the week, for two weeks, Everyone in our community showed up straight from work and just prayed our hearts out. God, wake Sunday up. God, would you heal him? Bring him out of this coma. We just found ways to rephrase that one simple prayer over and over and over and over again for hour after hour after hour. And because the life that he thought that he was guaranteed. I mean, he was 28. Your whole life's just getting going when you're 28. The life that he thought he was guaranteed, suddenly it was hanging in the balance. And the life that we thought we were guaranteed, friends who were living in the city side by side on this adventure that just gets better with time, it was then rudely, harshly interrupted by a headache that turned out to be a brain aneurysm. And now Sunday's dead, except for this machine that keeps him alive. And so we're praying, but those prayers are beginning to feel increasingly like requests that are just flung into this dark, empty void. And then a couple weeks later, they pulled the plug. And Sunday didn't wake up. And there is no storybook ending. And when you hear stories like those, I imagine that your own version of those kind of stories come back to your consciousness. The day your plan died the day you withdrew your last dollar and had no other options, the day you walked out of your boss's office to collect your things, the day she said she could not do this anymore, or the day the doctor said, there's no easy way to say this, but... See, suffering is always looming around our lives. It is nipping at our heels, and it occasionally wrestles us all the way to the ground, and some of us never get up. And even those of us who do walk with a limp from that point forward, suffering tends to be where we look hardest for God and where God is most difficult to find. G.K. Chesterton once said, the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has nobody to thank. And I believe that. I, I think that that's really true. But I also think it's true that the worst moment for the Christian is when she's suffering and the God she spent so many breaths thanking, she now finds herself blaming. And so today we begin a new teaching series and practice titled, In This World You Will Have Trouble, Jesus' Least Popular Promise. And we're going to spend uh, the season of Lent Lent talking about the theme of suffering. So why on earth would anyone spend 40 days on something as bleak as suffering? Well, because we just wrapped up a teaching series on prayer. And in the year 2020, for every 800 COVID diagnoses, the number of Google searches for the word prayer doubled. So when suffering suddenly snapped the illusion of control that we live under most of the time, so many people who in times of peace found God easy to ignore found themselves running to God in the face of suffering. 
But then, of course, there's the truth that for everyone who's desperately running to God in 2020, there was at least one other person saying good riddance to a God that didn't seem to be any help at all. Right, the same set of circumstances had half the world running to God and the other half of the world running from God. The same set of circumstances had the the world knocking on the doors of the church, but those who were within the pews of the church were fleeing from the for the exits at the exact same rate. What does that expose within the church? It exposes at least this much that we are more well acquainted with the God of the mountaintop than we are with the God of the valley that we know more about how to praise Jesus of powerful resurrection than we do how to weep with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That we're more well acquainted with the King of Kings than we are with the suffering servant. And the result of that is that we have a quietly divided church in the West today. That the American church, much of the American church has a spirituality that celebrates really well on the mountaintop. I mean, we are great in the church today at championing good people, telling great stories, and lifting our hands up in praise. We have built our churches on the peak of the mountains, and that's not a critique. That's good, because God does really work miracles. He answers prayers, and he transforms us from the inside out. Jesus himself leads us to the mountaintops, so we should celebrate well. But much of the American church lacks a spirituality that can recognize Jesus equally in the valley. We struggle to lament and to wait and to tell the unresolved stories. We struggle to weep with those who weep and to offer hope to the suffering. So then when the inevitability of suffering intrudes on our lives, some who have celebrated with a community on the mountaintop find themselves utterly alone in that same community. And they're still sitting around the table in the community that gathers in your living room each week, but they don't know how to bring this part of their story to the family that they've celebrated with. And some are walking away from the church, disillusioned and disappointed because the faith that that was so powerful at the summit seems flimsy and fragile down here in the valley. Because Jesus might promise trouble, but the church that introduced me to Jesus made it seem like he'd lead me by still waters and green pastures always, but never walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And some are leaving the majority American church for uh, a more liturgical tradition like a mainline Episcopalian parish or some edgy expression of Catholicism because there tends to be a more well-developed framework for suffering within those traditions than there is within the modern evangelical tradition. But often there's an equally underdeveloped expression of suffering in those traditions than there is in the modern evangelical tradition. So we've got this quietly divided church in the West with some uh, who hold high points well and others who hold suffering well, but Jesus held both together. And historically, the church has held both together. So why focus on something as bleak as suffering? Because God is just as present in the valley as he is at the mountaintop. And because we miss a whole lot if we get well acquainted with God at the peaks of our lives, but the valleys of our lives, we walk those alone. And because our only hope in the midst of suffering is a God who doesn't leave us alone there, but suffers with us and promises that that pain will be brought to an end and will never have the final word. So that is where we're going. And today I just want to lay a foundation that we can stand on for the six weeks ahead. So let's begin here. There's this haunting scene uh, in Elie Wiesel's memoir, Night, where Wiesel, who is a prisoner in Auschwitz, uh, arrives at a concentration camp, and and at first he is appalled by the madness of human mass extermination. There's a daily occurrence in that place. But then after months of being steeped in that experience, he's become hardened and calloused and and the tragedy that's all around him has become almost routine. And then he describes this one day when the entire camp is gathered together and the gallows are set up in front of them. And this was a regular thing, that whenever a prisoner broke some rule and was executed for the breaking of the rules, they would do it in front of the entire camp. They made everybody watch as a warning to the spectators. Only on this particular day, there were three prisoners. And the two on either side, they were grown men, but the one who was in the middle was just a child. And so the scene was biblical. It was like Golgotha, like two criminals on either side, but this one in the middle, 
the picture of innocence. And then when the guard yelled and the stools got kicked out from under their feet, the man directly behind Elie Wiesel just whispered under his breath, where is God? And from within me, this is Wiesel writing, and from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where. Hanging here from this gallows. Two men. One looks at that scene and rages at God. The other looks at that scene and rages at the darkness, marveling at a God who would be kind enough to enter it. You see, perspective shapes our experience of suffering. What we expect from this life, what we think we're due or entitled to, what we think God promises us and what he doesn't, it controls our reaction to and our interpretation of the events of our lives. Alastair McIntyre says, I can only answer the question, what am, I can do, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Or as our friend Pete Hughes uh, often says, the story you live in is the story you live out. So, in order to properly know God amidst suffering, to know how to look for him and find him there, to know his promises to us, uh, when we thought that his promises had run out, we first have to know the story that our lives are playing out within. That's the foundation that I want to lay today, the story of the Bible when it comes to suffering. Or I would title it this way, The Birth and Death of Suffering. And I want to give you that story today in nine crucial scenes. So, I hope your thumbs are ready. We're going to do a lot of turning through the Bible. Get those things out right now. Um, We're about to make our way from Genesis to Revelation, tracing this single theme. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles physically today, because I want you to see that I'm tracing a theme that runs through every page of the Scripture, not just cherry-picking a verse or two. So I'm going to invite you to, to follow along with me. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1. We're going to start on page one of the Bible. I'm going to meet you there in just a second. But as a jumping off point, I want to return to the teaching text that was read a moment ago. On the final night of Jesus' life, he had the nerve to say this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now there's two key hooks in that simple uh, statement that are going to anchor the whole of the biblical story. The first is in Jesus' use of the word trouble. Jesus promises us that here and now, in this life, in this world, we will have trouble. In Matthew 6, 13, when Jesus teaches us to pray, the anchor of the teaching series we've just come from, he ends that prayer with the statement, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And in paraphrasing this verse, some translators actually use the word trouble, And lead us not into trouble, but deliver us from the evil one. So that is the origin of every trouble in the Bible. It's the evil one. And that's the beginning of the story. But the second hook comes when Jesus uses the word overcome. But take heart because I've overcome the world. Now that verb overcome in ancient Greek, it's written in the perfect tense. uh, Meaning that it refers to right now and the future. It's a current and an ongoing action, and that's the end of the story. You're gonna suffer in this world, Jesus promises us that. But I have won a decisive victory against the cause of all of your trouble, so you can have peace amidst suffering and hope uh, for an end to suffering because of my victory. It informs your present and your future. That's the story in a single statement. In an unpopular promise, in Jesus' last 24 hours on this earth, he summed up the whole of the Bible. But we need more than just a statement. We need the story that, that pulls on this theme of suffering from both ends. So that brings us to the birth and death of suffering. And we will begin in Genesis chapter 1 with episode 1, creation. The biblical story does not begin with conflict. It starts with bliss. And that's actually one of the distinguishing markers of the biblical story from all of the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories or, or tales of divinity from this time is that this one begins with goodness, not with violence or with suffering. God did not create a world of pain and suffering, but a place that he called good 
every step of the way and very good when he had completed the whole thing. The early movements of the Bible are of a created people living in paradise, meaning heaven on earth. Heaven and earth as one place. There was no death, no grief, no sadness, and no pain on page one of our story. But just turn to Genesis 3, turn one page, and you'll see that God's very good creation is corrupted by the evil one. This is scene two, fall. See, Adam and Eve, they they plucked that forbidden fruit from that one forbidden tree, and the consequences are of the furthest reaching variety. Suddenly, they distrust the God that they used to know as loving father. They feel insecure and distant from one another, and the creation itself is cursed. After explaining the consequences of sin to the evil one, the serpent, then to the woman, and then to the man, God says something really interesting in Genesis 3.17. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. So the consequences of sin haven't just infected people, they've infected every square inch of the creation itself. It's in the air that you breathe and the dirt that you walk on. There is nothing in all of creation untouched by sin. And if you look in the very next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel. So God reluctantly allows humanity to have what they want, to be God over their own lives. And the consequences of that exchange are that they leave Eden, no death, no grief, no sadness, no pain, to inhabit instead a world of suffering where there is death, grief, sadness, and pain. You see, God told one story, the serpent told another, humanity believed the serpent, and the world as we know it today is the product of believing that lie. The story you live in is the story you live out. So where does all of this trouble come from? What is the source of the suffering that Jesus Jesus promises we will face in this life? It's not God. It's sin. All of our trouble is the product of a curse that infected every aspect of the world that God made good and only good. Why didn't the baby grow to full term? Why would life begin in a mother's womb and then die there before it's lived a single day? Why would a promise of covenant love be be broken before it ever got to start by distrust that rips through a relationship? And why would a young man in his 20s lay down to rest because of a headache and never get back up? Not because God willed any of it, but because the consequences of this curse, it's in the air that we breathe and the dirt that we walk on. It's of the furthest reaching variety. Why do we weep over caskets? Why does a tsunami wave wash up on the coast of Vietnam or a hurricane ram into New Orleans? Uh, Why does a disease start in one person in Wuhan and grow until the whole world is paralyzed? And and why does one nation invade another and treat people like they're something less than equals? Not because of God, but because this sin thing, it's got consequences. Now please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that all suffering is the direct result of anyone's particular sin. That's not the Bible. What I'm saying is that the curse of sin has infected the world that we live in and that suffering is a symptom of sin, meaning the world we chose, not of God, the world that he created. That is the biblical teaching on the origins of suffering. Eugene Peterson says, what we need to know is that suffering is neither an impersonal fate nor a cut and dry moral punishment. We're implicated in a world of sin, sometimes ours and sometimes others, and therefore in a world of suffering. We live in a world of injustice, pain, and suffering, but we have an all-powerful and perfectly loving God. How can those two things coexist? How can that happen? How can there be a God perfect in both power and love and a world where this or that would happen? That's the question that, that is littered into our lives by our own personal experiences of suffering, by the curse. Theologians call that that question theodicy which is an English word from two Latin words, meaning the justice of God. And there is no philosophy or worldview or religion that that sidesteps the theodicy riddle. Whatever you believe, whatever story you tell, however you make sense of the world, you are stuck with, with a square peg called suffering trying to fit that into a round hole called God. 
And the only question, uh, that's a question that many of us ask and keep on asking, but it's not the only question that is presented to us by suffering. There's another question, one that's equally important that goes like this. How does God feel about suffering? And that brings us to the next scene, one that we often overlook. It's uh, in Genesis chapter six. So again, just turn a page or two ahead with me. This is scene three. How does God feel about suffering? I'm gonna begin reading in verse five of Genesis chapter six. The Lord saw how, the wicked, how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So God looks down at the consequences of sin, the way that people are treating each other, the thoughts that ran through our neural pathways, the mixed motives and manipulation and selfish intentions within us, the suffering that all of that had produced as history had rolled by and he regretted creation in the first place. You see, as elated as God is at Genesis 1, seeing it all come to be, he is equally grieved in Genesis 6, and his heart was deeply troubled. The original Hebrew indicates that God is pained, that pain is inflicted on him by what his eyes are seeing, that it hurts him to look. So how does God feel about suffering? It grieves his heart. It grieves his heart in the same way that it grieves mine or yours. And as the story rolls forth, God seems to work through something like what we call the stages of grief. What began as sadness gets expressed other times as anger. Uh, Scripture reveals a God who loves his creation in a way that will never quit. A God who hates sin with a tenacity that will not be satisfied until he's eradicated every last trace. A God who is equally gentle and tenacious. A God who's just a warrior, a tenacious warrior, is incomplete. That's power without love, and that's not good news. But so is a God who's just a, a gentle co-sufferer is incomplete. Because that's love without power, and that can comfort you, but it cannot heal you. It's also not good news. The God of the Bible is both a heartbroken parent who is grieving loss and a warrior who will stop at nothing to defeat the enemy and redeem every trace of the cost along the way. And that is good news. So here's the principle we get from the first six chapters of the Bible. Suffering in every variety is the consequence of sin. Not the punishment of sin, but the natural consequence of sin. And sin and suffering deeply grieves the heart of God and God hates sin and suffering. And as the story unfolds, we see that the intervening character of God, who is infinite in power and perfect in love, gets worked out within this world of suffering. So if you would turn with me now to Exodus chapter 3. We made it to the second book of the Bible. We're going to get there. And this is scene 4, the Father's heart. Now where I'm having you turn is that famous burning bush encounter when God makes an appeal to Moses and then he sends him to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel who are living in slavery. But we learn something really important about God's heart from that fiery bush. And it's in Exodus 3, verse 7. Read along with me there. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So whose cry was it that reached God's ear? Whose prayer is God responding to in the Exodus? It's not Moses. It's the unnamed, faceless Hebrew slaves who are whispering prayers under their breath while they're baking bricks in the hot desert sun to build somebody else's empire. It's the prayers of the oppressed that God is hearing. God gives a preferential ear to suffering. That's a theme that emerges here and gets traced all throughout the Bible from this point. God's presence and power is preferential to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, and the suffering. Of course it is. He's a father. And every loving parent is preferential to their child in crisis. If, if you've got one child that's making straight A's and the other that's been held back, then, then the parent will celebrate. The good parent celebrates the child making straight A's but lies awake at night, worried over the one who's failing. 
If you've got one child who gets home safely and the other who gets into a car accident and never shows up, a good parent doesn't cling to the one who's home safely, thankful that they still have at least one. They go out in search of the one who's in pain to bring them home safely. Or most on the nose for me today, if you've got a couple of children at home who are healthy and one child who's lying in a hospital bed right now hooked up to an incredible amount of tubes just to keep them alive, then your heart and imagination is preferential to that child that needs help. That's the heart of a parent. Scene five, the promised savior. As the story unfolds from there, Israel finds themselves in captivity again to a new captor instead of Egypt, this time it's Babylon. And this time, God doesn't raise up a deliverer like Moses to set them free, but instead gives a prophet Isaiah to live among them. So this time, God doesn't send a rescuer from the outside, but raises up a messenger from within their midst to suffer with them, but to offer a message even as they suffer. So in Exodus, we meet God as deliverer, but in exile, we meet God as co-sufferer. Why? Because he's gentle and tenacious. He's a warrior, but he's also a grieving parent. This is Isaiah 53. I'm putting this one on the screen for you just to give you a little breather. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a deliverer coming, an even better deliverer than Moses, but he's not coming with ten plagues and parting seas. He's coming to suffer. And by his suffering, we will be freed once for all, healed forever. Scene six, Jesus. God brings an end to our suffering by suffering with us. We can't skip over this part like we had the others. You've got to camp out here for a second. So I want to explain to you the life of Jesus along these lines, how he came, how he lived, how he died, and how he lived again. So first, how he came. God could have written himself into his own story at any point in history to, to any people group and, and been a part of any family of origin. And so it is profoundly revealing of the heart of God that he willingly chose to be born during an infant genocide to an oppressed minority to peasant parents. It meant that Jesus chose to spend his childhood as a refugee batted around by political tyrants and unjust systems that were above him that he grew up shamed in a religious culture uh, to a scandalous pregnancy, and that as a young adult, he was a blue-collar worker barely making ends meet in a rural village. You see, the birth of Jesus meant that God willingly chose to become a storyteller from within, from the inside, not from the outside. God did not sit at a distance and write a happy ending to a story that was wrought with conflict and suffering throughout. He entered into his own cursed and corrupted creation, became a part of his own story, and redeemed that conflict through personality, grief, pain, and suffering. Jesus made the biblical story a grand salvation drama that gets worked out from within. That's how he came. Then how he lived... Uh, when it was time for him to begin his ministry, Jesus did not start with teaching or miraculous spectacle, but instead with 40 days of fasting alone in the wilderness, with willing suffering. And it was there that Jesus squared off against a tempter, the very tempter who had deceived Adam and Eve in the garden on page one. Only Jesus resists where people gave in. The surprising thing about Jesus' showdown in the wilderness, though, is that the temptations on their face don't seem all that bad, Right? You haven't eaten in 40 days, so turn this stone into bread and enlist angels to rescue you and worship me and I'll just go ahead and give you the creation that you seem to want so bad. I mean, it's not lie to your friends, cheat on your spouse, and rob a bank. So what is Satan getting at in these three temptations? Well, he's proposing a shortcut method to redemption. Taste bread without ever having to till up the soil to plant the seed and to wait on the crop. Win instant popularity by spectacle. Uh, get your creation back without suffering. It's all shortcuts. Become a king without ever becoming a servant. Wear a crown but never carry a cross. Redeem the world. But do it without suffering. Jesus resists the shortcuts. Why? Why didn't he take the shortcut method? Because a victorious but unsuffering God is not good news. You see, human beings are meaning-seeking creatures. 
All of us, all the time, are telling stories to make coherent narratives out of the lives that we're living. That's the only way we can stand to go about our day-to-day lives, is to have stories that make sense of the events that we're living. And the greatest disturbance to our self-storytelling, our search for meaning, is the suffering that intrudes and interrupts. I had a story that I was comfortable telling myself until my husband died in a car accident because an intoxicated teenager ran a red light. Or until I walked out of a doctor's office with a leukemia diagnosis at 17. Or until I went through labor and delivery and then she was stillborn. Or until I was manipulated by a colleague and then forced to carry a secret. You see, that's why the psychologist David Benner says, ultimately, we need a meaning strong enough to make suffering sufferable. This is the crucial test of any life meaning. It has to help us live life. For it to do that, it has to help us cope with suffering. The most scandalous part of Jesus to modern ears is his claim to be Lord. The most scandalous part of Jesus to ancient ears is that he, the Lord, would suffer. A God who bleeds, a God who weeps, a God who grieves, a God who dies. I mean, God on a throne, sure. God on a cross, never. And I understand why it was such a shock that God would suffer, but I also think that a God who doesn't suffer probably isn't a God worth trusting. Because without the courage to take his own medicine, to crawl down here into this world and feel the darkness and the helplessness that the rest of us feel all the time, how could God be trusted? How could God be relatable? Without suffering, how could God help anyone cope with suffering? How could God tell a real story that our real lives can fit within? You see, Jesus and only Jesus makes suffering sufferable because he dealt with suffering by suffering, because he made a way through suffering by suffering, and because he brings an end to suffering by suffering. He's winning a decisive victory, and nothing can stop him from doing that, but he's winning it by bearing the cost of the curse, by enduring the real-life consequences of, of choices that he never made on our behalf by suffering. That's how he lived. And then, of course, how he died. Jesus was crucified outside of the city gate. That's the ancient equivalent to Skid Row. It was a completely unpoliced ghetto just outside of the city gate of every ancient Near Eastern city. It's where the criminalized, or I'm sorry, the uncivilized or the criminal or the sick or the weak were cast out just to fend for themselves out there in the wilderness. Cast off as something less than human, treated like stray animals just to, to be forced to live outside of the purview of the civilized. And then the word made flesh, God in human form carried his cross beyond that gate, executed as a common criminal among the common criminals. And he did that to redeem every wrong, to crush the serpent's head, to borrow the language on page one in Genesis. The cross is the means by which Jesus forgave us our sins and the means by which he dealt with our suffering. Jesus himself in resurrected form went on to claim that his suffering was not some unfortunate embarrassment that he had to endure in order to cover for you and me, but his suffering was actually the ultimate revelation of his glory. This is Luke 24. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus suffered so that you and I might be healed. That's his glory. A broken body that then pours out healing on every square inch of his cursed creation. Biblically, this word healing, it does not mean to relieve the symptoms. It it means wholeness. Which is why the author Henry Nouwen says to heal then does not primarily mean to take pains away. But to reveal that our pains are part of a greater pain. That our sorrows are a part of a greater sorrow. That our experience is part of the great experience of Jesus. You see, a God who suffers makes our suffering more than just meaningless pain, but repurposes our suffering into healing ointment that heals the creation itself. Our suffering is not the road to destruction. It is the pathway to glory because of the cross. It was in the way he died, not the way he lived, that ultimately makes us whole. You see, the cross, not the miracle stories, both was and is Jesus' greatest healing work. 
And not only does it heal us, but it makes our present suffering sufferable. It makes our, tri- our suffering not our triumphs. The valleys that we walk through alongside him, not the peaks where we celebrate with him, the, the greatest sources of healing for the world around us. When Jesus carried a heavy wooden beam on his back beyond the city gate, he wasn't just carrying a cross. He was carrying the weight of the whole world's suffering. And it was there beyond the gate that, that was crucified to that cross, not just a man, but our sin and our suffering was put in a tomb never to rise again. Finally, Jesus, how he lived again. Jesus showed us a God with the compassionate heart of a parent and the tenacity of a warrior. In his resurrection, we see a parent's heart so in love that he would identify with the harshest suffering, the most devastating consequences of a mess that he never intended and had no hand in making. He showed all that to us on Friday on the cross. But what emerged from the tomb was a warrior so tenacious that he won a decisive victory on behalf of the whole of the human race. Uh, a warrior redemptive so that he, he won that not by strength but by his weakness, not by killing but by being killed and not by fighting but by suffering. That's what he showed us on Sunday morning when he pushed back his own gravestone. So there you have Jesus, how he came, how he lived, how he died, and how he lived again. There's no one like our God. There's no one like him. It was also staggering to see firsthand that it created this new kind of community. A community who didn't fit into this world because it did not belong to this world. A community that was now invading the world for good. A people whose lives had become unrecognizable to the foundational assumptions that had guided human nature from that point. So if you would turn ahead with me now to Acts chapter 5. And I want to meet you there in verse 40. Acts 5, verse 40, this brings us to scene 7, the early church. Now, for some context here, the church has come alive by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they've caused enough of an uproar that the priests who used to oppose Jesus have now started opposing those who claimed Jesus' name, the community that was formed around Jesus. So they've called Peter and John, the two most visible leaders of the church at this point, into the courts to deliver a warning to them. This is Acts 5, starting in verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, can you imagine the reaction of the priests that just flogged them? We just finished beating these guys with rods And then they high-fived each other like it was an honor. Can can you see that their imagination, Peter and John's imagination is so captive to a different story. Their allegiance is so completely given over to an alternative king in a different kingdom that their way of being in this world now makes no sense to this world because it doesn't belong to this world. You see, the way suffering looks, the way it played out in the early church, if you continue to read the pages of Scripture, is is the same way that rocks function in in a mighty rushing river, right? Rocks create rapids in a river, right? Rocks don't stop a river's flow. They just, they expose the actual power of the flow that is invisible most of the time. And so we see these rapids coming and moments of suffering enter the story of the early church, but they're just like creating rapids just to show how strong the flow of this current really is. What if the suffering that unjustly and painfully intrudes upon your life did not stop or slow the current of the story that you're living in? What if it actually showed and exposed how strong that story really is? Turn a few pages ahead with me now to the book of Romans. I want to read to you from chapter 5. This brings us to Paul's letters. We're nearly there. We've got nine scenes. This is number 8. Paul's letters. I'm going to read to you from Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's pretty routine stuff so far, right? Not only so... But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you realize what Paul is claiming? 
He is making the claim that just as for Jesus, suffering was the pathway to glory, so for us, suffering is the pathway to glory. Our sufferings are just another step along the path of the glory that awaits us. Now, depending on your personal story of suffering, that is insensitive at best, maybe even offensive. Surely he didn't mean it like it sounds, right? Turn ahead one page to chapter 8. I want to read you from Romans 8. I'm starting in verse 14. It's a little bit later in the exact same letter. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Beautiful. Love this part. God's a father who's adopted me into his family. But keep reading. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also might share in his glory. Paul is doubling down. Jesus made suffering a part of glory. That is not a minor sub-point. It is a central theme throughout the New Testament. In fact, that theme of glory tied to suffering is found in the New Testament letters to the Corinthian, Thessalonian, and Ephesian churches, and both Paul and the Apostle Peter explicitly include it in their epistles. See, what I need you to know is that I'm not cherry-picking a verse or two here. I'm talking to you about a New Testament theme so explicit that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, suffering is the true badge of discipleship. So as disciples of Jesus, we identify both with Jesus bringing the kingdom to the city and Jesus facing down demons in the wilderness. Both with Jesus feasting with his disciples and with Jesus abandoned by his disciples. Both with Jesus of Resurrection Sunday and Jesus of the cross on Good Friday. Both with Jesus of of Easter Sunday morning and Jesus of Lenten, suffering, darkness, and waiting. Now this is a dangerous point to make quickly. There are so many different kinds of suffering. And to paint something as awful as personal suffering with a broad brush is a very dangerous thing to do. So please hear me say that I am quickly laying a foundation that we are going to dig into in the weeks ahead. I'm showing you a theme that you have personal relationship with, but we need to understand the theme so that we can get to the personal. So you may be asking, how does that work? How on earth does suffering produce glory? Not when we're reading it on a page or talking in a formal setting, but experiencing it in real life. I'm talking about a diagnosis or a loss or an interruption or a betrayal. How is any of that in any way connected to something like glory? Look, you need to hear me say that there's nothing intrinsically noble about suffering. Sometimes pain just hurts and suffering is just sad and grief just has to be gotten through and there's nothing more to it than that. And sentimentalizing the bad in our lives does not make the bad good. It's still bad, plain and simple. But there is a way that we can endure the tragic consequences of a fallen world in a way that allows God to transform something as dark as suffering into something like redemption. And it's easier if you see this than for me to try to say it. So I want to give you a picture. All the way back in Genesis 32, there's this really strange scene in the early stages of God's long, slow redemption plan when Jacob wrestles with God. When this one man named Jacob actually spends all night in a real rolling around on the ground wrestling match with the divine. And that bizarre but profound scene ends at sunrise. There's obvious imagery there. It ends when the light breaks the dark. That's when the wrestle stops. And two things happen at that moment. One is that Jacob's hip is knocked out of socket. And the other is that God renames Jacob. That because of his wrestle, he says, now that you've wrestled with me, I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore, but your name is Israel. So Jacob wrestles with God, and that's what we do in times of suffering. That's what we should do, at least. The spiritually healthy response to suffering is to take the fight to God. It is to pray your pain It is to ask hard questions without clear answers. It is to express your sadness or grief or disappointment and to do all of that with God. 
to pray out our pain, to pray out our emotion, to take the fight to the God of power and love and say it like we really mean it. God, you could have, but God, you didn't. We take the fight to God because when we do, we connect our ache to his ache. We connect our pain to the great pain. And two things happen when we wrestle with God. They're the same things that happened to Jacob. Jacob got a new name. In the Hebrew imagination, that meant he's given a new identity. And it was Israel, which literally means one who wrestles with God. This is our inheritance as his children, is to wrestle with him. But the second is that he walks with a limp the rest of his life. And so here's the principle that I want you to see and that you also experience is that suffering and the wrestling with God that we endure through suffering is repurposed into redemption. It gives us a new identity, a new name, a redemptive one, and suffering hurts. It hurts in a way that we never fully recover from this side of eternity. We walk with a limp the rest of our lives from the pain that God never intended that we face and has inflicted upon us. Now, I want to bring that a little bit closer to ring out the ways, as far as we can define them, that God dignifies our own experience of suffering by repurposing that atrocity into the creative force of redemption. Suffering is connected to glory because suffering, like nothing else in this life, exposes what is real and what is counterfeit. Uh, Suffering fills us with gratitude for relationship. That's the greatest gift that we're given, is relationship with one another. It's the greatest gift that we're given in this life, and it's the one that we're ever prone to take for granted. It's why, in the early stages of COVID isolation, there was this global sense of gratitude for the simplicity of what used to be being able to hug a friend or to share a meal with loved ones or just to jump on a flight to be close to someone that we treasure. When those things went away, all of a sudden we realized what we've been taking for granted because prior to COVID isolation, all that was routine. And so it often got pushed to the side so that I could finish up this project or schedule one more thing or prepare for tomorrow's presentation. We took each other for granted until suffering intruded and showed us what was really valuable and what was counterfeit. And that's what suffering does. But it's not all that suffering does. You see, suffering teaches us gratitude and suffering teaches us empathy. Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is the book that Dr. King carried around in his pocket throughout the civil rights movement, talks about suffering and how it turns us inward at first. In the early stages, the sufferer can only see his or her own situation. They can only see their own experience of suffering. But with time, some can rise above their suffering and actually see others through the lens of their suffering through their own pain, and that their pain can then be repurposed in compassion toward other people, a kind of compassion that without that experience would have been impossible. So there's a solidarity and an empathy that can be produced within suffering when it's brought to God. I was lucky enough to be uh, mentored by the pastor and author Tim Keller when he was diagnosed with cancer, and I remember him saying directly to me, You know, I keep on thinking of all those people in my congregations over the decades who have come to me to tell me that they received a cancer diagnosis. And honestly, in my inner life, I responded as if it was routine. Because cancer is such a common diagnosis, you hear about it all the time. I didn't think all that much of it, but now that I'm going to all these appointments and I'm taking all these drugs and I'm feeling all their effect on my day-to-day activities, I cannot believe that I treated something like this as if it were routine. There was empathy that was being produced in him by his own suffering. My third son, Amos, was born last week. And as you know, he was recently diagnosed with two very severe heart conditions. And the one big takeaway that I've had through walking through this pain in public so far has been this, that it draws out everyone who has had any sort of similar thing. Everyone who's had heart diagnosis in a young person in their family comes not to dump their story on me, but to identify with me in the suffering, say, what can I do? I know how this feels. How can I help? Why? Because there's a compassion that has been produced by their own experience that if taken to God can be repurposed for others in compassion. See, losing your mother produces compassion for anyone who's ever lost their mother. 
And miscarriage and infertility creates empathy for those who have lived through the same thing. And bipolar disorder softens your heart toward the mentally ill. And after living off cup noodles for a little while, suddenly you have a softer heart toward the poor. There's an inherent solidarity that suffering can produce within us that draws compassion to the surface of our lives like nothing else can. And in at least that way, suffering can be redemptive. See, it's unjust and painful in every way. It is sinful. But Jesus' suffering infused even that with bits of glory. In his masterpiece, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl documents his life in a concentration camp. He was a Jew held as a prisoner during uh, the Nazi concentration, but he was also a psychologist who looked at the experience of all of the other prisoners through both uh, suffering with them as a prisoner and as a psychologist who was noticing all of their reactions to what they were going through. And then he later wrote that the harshness of suffering can produce either a cold cynicism or a warm compassion within the sufferer. But it's one or the other. That for some, he noticed that suffering made their desires smaller. That some would then trade the shirt off their back just for a cigarette butt so that they could get the last couple drags off of it. Or they would trade their bread to keep going for a little bit of homemade prison liquor to escape for a moment. That in the face of suffering, some became cynical. Life is meaningless, fate is hopeless, so I'm just going to reach for creature comforts to escape for as few moments as I can in the little bit of time I got left. But there were others who, in the face of the same circumstances, enduring the same suffering, Their suffering made their desires, their true desires, their deep desires larger. They rose to the occasion. They fought day by day, minute by minute to survive. They worked again in the winter cold in a tattered t-shirt. They lived off of breadcrumbs. They worked their aching bodies to the bone. Why? Because there's a chance that my wife or child or brother is doing the same thing. And they're fighting to see me on the other side of this one day, and so I can fight to see them too. And even just the small possibility of that hope keeps me alive another day. So what was it that made the difference? What was it that made some individuals uh, choose the chill of cynicism while others chose the warmth of compassion? Well, according to Frankel, it was meaning. That those who were able to connect their suffering to some sense of larger meaning, to some larger narrative or coherent story, they were the ones who became more human not less in the face of suffering. And likewise, uh, in the late 50s, Martin Luther King was beginning to gain credibility and the civil rights movement was just beginning to really gather momentum. And it was during that time that he was suddenly stabbed by a deranged woman in New York City. Dr. King was just 31 at the time and 18 months after that stabbing, he did an interview in which he said this, As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation. Either to react with bitterness or to seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. See, we don't choose to let suffering into our lives. It just barges in uninvited. But once it has so rudely intruded, suffering does have an invitation to offer us. Suffering can, if we are courageous enough to look for God in the darkest valleys, to wrestle with him in the pitch black of midnight, it can introduce us to him in new ways and draw his character, the imago Dei that lives within every last one of us, nearer to the surface of our lives. Suffering is not good. There's not one little bit of it that's good, but the horrific, unjust suffering of this world does have an invitation for us, and that's how Jesus' suffering defines not just our ultimate destination, but even our present pain. That when we connect our suffering to the suffering of Christ, that then his, his image in our lives is deepened and widened. That's why the souls of the early church uh, were deepened and widened until their appetites were unrecognizable to this world because they did not belong to this world. Uh, They were so a part of another kingdom that in the words of Hebrews, the world was not worthy of them. See, we can't choose whether or not to suffer. We can only choose how to respond to suffering. So will we discover there's some of the hard-won glory that Jesus did? One of the great dignities that Jesus gave our suffering was the way it has the potential to forge our character like nothing else does. 
Suffering can be the place that you never want to go, but also the place that you would be the never, never be the same without. Right, the true test of any great film is when the credits roll. There's some movies that we really enjoy and then the film ends and everyone jumps up right away and they kind of laugh and talk about um, uh, their favorite parts in the movie and everything, but there's another kind of film that the credits begin to roll and no one in the theater moves an inch because they're still taking in the weight and gravity of the story. It's that kind of film that you never want to see again, but it's going to leave an imprint on you because you saw it. And the suffering that we endure in this life, the wilderness patches along our journeys, they can be like that. Those are the steps I never want to walk again. But they've also left an imprint on my life that I can't imagine who I would be if I had not walked those paces. Ronald Rollheiser says, how we handle hurt with either bitterness or forgiveness will color the rest of our lives and determine what kind of person we're going to be. Suffering and humiliation will either soften our hearts or harden our souls. And in that way, I'm sorry, suffering will either harden our hearts or soften our souls. And in that way, for the sufferer who takes the fight to God, suffering is repurposed into recreation and redemption. The biblical story, my friends, does not sidestep the tragedy of suffering, but it faces it head on. Not a way to escape suffering, a way to endure it, even to turn it into a key ingredient in the recipe of redemption. A story that makes suffering sufferable. Is there any other story that can do that? Now I'm aware of how long I've been talking. But you cannot lay this foundation quickly. And so I just want to share one final thing with you in closing, and it's this. That all that I've just said is very good and very real, and it's not enough. It's not enough. A a story where suffering can produce character in the sufferer is not enough. It is still not good news. Aaron Kushner died at age 14, and his father Harold was a Jewish rabbi who, looking back on his own life, wrote this. I'm a more sensitive person, a more effective pastor, a more sympathetic counselor because of Aaron's life and death than I would have been without it. And I would give up all of those gains in a second if I could have my son back. If I could choose, I would forego all the spiritual growth and depth which has come my way because of our experiences and be what I was 15 years ago, an average rabbi and indifferent counselor helping some people and unable to help others and the father of a bright, happy boy. But I cannot choose. See, given the choice that none of us have, I imagine that we'd all take the same trade and that's why the biblical story does not dignify suffering, or it doesn't only dignify suffering in the present, but it promises its decisive end in the future. So we'll land here on scene nine. If you turn with me one more time to Revelation chapter one, I want to read you scene nine. Good news. Revelation 21, beginning in verse three. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, suffering for those who accept the free gift of God's grace does not win. It does not have the final word. The curse that infected creation on the first page is fully, finally, forever eradicated on the last reunited with the one you lost, a heavenly body that works forever according to its design. Sadness, anger, pain, and hurt are banished forever. That is good news. And that is the end of the story. That is the full realization of Jesus' victory. It is a promise and one that we can trust and build our lives on, one that is coming in the future, but we can taste even now in the present. And yet it's still a promise that we wait on. Because even this great heavenly vision of the story coming to an end, it was written by an elderly man who was unjustly exiled on the island of Patmos. It was written from suffering. Theologians call this the already not yet. That there's an end coming to all suffering and it's one that we can be sure of because Jesus has already accomplished it but we are not there yet. We're still somewhere in the middle, in the thick of the plot, living in the consequences of the conflict, but tasting the fruit of the victory, and that's where our whole lives happen, in this in-between space, 
So where can we find hope in the in-between, in the already-not-yet? Well, we have to look forward to the finished promise. But right now, we live on the in-between promise that that long-awaited heavenly city, it's built out of the shattered pieces of the fall. See, here's the final theme, that, that God's method of recreation is not protection, it is redemption. God does not promise to protect us from pain. In fact, he promises that we will feel it. In this world, you will have trouble. But what he does promise is to redeem every moment of pain to redeem paper cuts and grief and lifelong agonizing suffering, all of it, and to redeem life both inwardly and outwardly. It's not just the promise that in the end suffering won't win. It's that every bit of pain you endure in this life will be woven by the great storyteller into the tapestry of redemption, that every tear that you shed, every pain you feel, every heartbreak, every loneliness, every abandonment, every trial, every tragedy will be redeemed and made into a piece of the coming promise It is the creative force through which redemption comes. God builds the promised heavenly city out of the shattered pieces of the fall. And so we end where we began. Elie Wiesel, standing looking at those gallows, that Golgotha scene. Where is God? Where is he? He's right there hanging from those gallows. And that's what this teaching series is about. It's learning to recognize God in the dark, in the valley, in the suffering. Because if you're not in the muck right now, you have been before and you will be again. And a faith that lasts through the mess of this life is a faith that's as real in the valley as it is on the mountaintop. That's where we're going together.